Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, the last chapter in the Gospel of John. As I mentioned last Sunday, I'm doing a, some messages right now that cover that interval, that 50-day interval of time between the Passover time when Jesus was crucified and then risen from the dead on the third day, and the day of Pentecost. Pentecost follows Passover by 50 days. It is the day after the seventh Sabbath. So a day after the Sabbath is always what day of the week? Sunday, the first day of the week. So Pentecost always, always took place on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so in that interval of time, last Sunday we talked a little bit about Thomas here in the 21st chapter. And today I want to look at Jesus' encounter with Simon Peter here in our text. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through that passage. But I've entitled this message, Committed to the Cause. Committed to the Cause. And I think in your bulletins you have a little outline in the inside cover that talks about commitment to the cause and three little statements that you can fill in the blanks for there as we go through this. What does it take for you and I to be committed to the cause of Christ? What does it take? For years and years, uh, this next week, uh, the Kayamichi Men's Clinic will take place down at, uh, around Honubi, Oklahoma. Honubi, spelled Hanobia but pronounced Honubi. They have weird names down there, all right? They really do. Uh, I thought that the best town I saw one time when I went to the Kaimichis was a town called Bald Knob. I think my ancestors came from there. And so, uh, but nevertheless, their, their, their theme and, and to this day continues to be, how can I make my life count more effectively for Christ? All right, what does it take to do that? What does it take to be committed to the cause? We sang songs this morning that Alan picked out, living for Jesus. What does it take to do that? Just a closer walk with thee. What does it take to have that kind of close walk? Three things that I want to point out from our text this morning. And the first step is that we have to obey what God commands us to do. We have to obey what God commands us to do. Jesus told his disciples here, to, uh, after the resurrection, he's appeared to them. He told them to go and wait for him in Galilee. In Galilee. Now, does that sound a little bit strange? Because most of Jesus' resurrection appearances took place where? In Jerusalem. And, and around that area. That's where the church was going to start on the day of Pentecost. That's where most of the followers were. So why would he tell them to go to Galilee and wait for them when he's going to bring them right back to Jerusalem? Because when he ascends into heaven, what has he told them? Go and stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. The city of what? Jerusalem. But, but he first tells them to go and wait for him in Galilee. So why would he do that? Well, it's simple. It was just part of his plan for them. And Jesus wanted them to be a part of an incredible 
miraculous event that was going to take place there. And that miraculous event will sound pretty familiar to you. Now, when you obey what the Lord commands, you communicate that the Lord really is the Lord of your life. Obedience shows you're responding to His Lordship. And God can command and communicate different things to different people. I don't know what it is, maybe, that God has laid on your heart. Maybe what what you feel He's commanding you to do. But I pray and hope that you will obey what He commands. So John chapter 21, it takes place just a few weeks after Christ's resurrection. Jesus has told them to go to Galilee and wait for Him there. Well, that's going to be like going home for Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? Because they lived up there before they followed Jesus. Uh, they, they were partners in the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee. So to, for them to go back to Galilee, they're going back home. And so they go up there and Simon Peter announces to at least six of the other disciples that I'm going fishing. Well, that wasn't uncommon at all. And being the leader that he was, all six just joined in with him and said, we'll go too. And they fished the entire night, but the Bible contains the saddest phrase that any fisherman could imagine. At the end of verse 3, it says, they caught nothing. Not a thing. So let's pick up the text beginning in verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, children... You do not have any fish, do you? How did he know that? Well, he's the Lord, of course. They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Why would you put on more clothes to jump in and swim? That doesn't make sense to me, but that's what he did. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now remember that John, who is composing this account, is a fisherman. Him and Andrew had been partners with uh, him and his brother James, had been partners with Simon Peter and Andrew. And so he's on the boat, and he makes certain to point out to all fishermen to come that these are large fish. All right. Larry, every fish you've ever caught has been a large one, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It was this big, you know, so. But being a man, he wants to make certain that these people know these are large fish, that they hadn't just stumbled onto a to a a school of bluegill, okay, or goldfish or something. No, these are large fish. In fact, 
Does this miracle sound familiar to you? Well, it should. We just studied this not too long back from Luke chapter 5. This is the same basic miracle that Jesus performed when he commanded Peter what? From now on, you'll be fishers of men. Because they had fished all night. Jesus had borrowed one of the boats. Then he told Peter to cast out a little bit as he taught the people. And then he said, push on out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And they had to call a second boat to come and haul it. I mean, basically the same miracle here. Okay? Now, why would Jesus choose to replicate this same kind of miracle? Evidently, and by the way, evidently the first time they didn't count the fish. But they do this time, all right? They make sure that they're going to count every one of them, and they count 153 large fish. So, indeed, this is a miracle. A miracle it's a miracle the nets didn't break. I think that's why John points it out. But, but why replicate the same miracle of the miraculous catch of fish? First time Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you're going to catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore back then, left everything and followed him, okay? Because catching fish is just a physical and material blessing. It'll feed you for today, but it's not going to last forever. And Jesus was saying to them, then I want to turn you on to something that will last for all of eternity. I want you to fish for people. I want you to allow the gospel to make a difference in their lives forever. And now Jesus repeats the miracle I believe in order to remind them to keep on fishing. Keep on fishing. You want to be committed to the cause of Christ? Do what he commands. And one of the things he commands is for all of us to keep on fishing. Keep on fishing. Now that I've conquered the grave, you need to keep casting your nets out there and keep fishing for men and women that they might come to me. And becoming that type of a fisherman or fisherwoman, all right, that's a witness for Christ. And it's not all that difficult when it comes from your heart, sharing your faith with others. It just becomes a natural byproduct of what's most important to you. And the slightest gesture of kindness can make a difference in someone's life. Did you know that if you invite someone to church more times than not, they'll take you up on it? And they'll say yes, and they'll attend just because you took an interest in them. Just because you asked. And that's a simple way to go fishing. To invite someone to come and worship with you. To invite someone to a fellowship time. To invite someone to a small group or a church activity or a Sunday school class. Those are good first steps in fishing. Why are we so scared to go fishing? How is it we have allowed our culture today to just thwart our boldness and to stifle our convictions and our beliefs? I mean, we sing powerful songs of worship, but do our lives support the lyrics that we sing? Are we really committed to the cause of Christ? And someone might say, well, Bill, faith is a very personal matter. We don't want to push our beliefs and, and our views on someone else. Well, I'm not asking you to 
hit them over the head with the acts of the apostles, all right? I'm not asking you to cram your beliefs down someone's throat, but I'm suggesting that you present your biblical views to others and then live a life that matches your beliefs and you invite them to hear the gospel message. You make them thirsty for the gospel by the life that you live. I mean, after all, if, if, if the one who did conquer the grave left us a handwritten roadmap that described the path to eternity, the way to eternity, shouldn't we tell others about the route and how to get there? Did Jesus leave us a handwritten map? Well, sure he did in his word. And so we ought to give that to others so they can get to the place where they ought to be. Oh, but preacher, I mean, you got to let other people make their own decisions. You don't start meddling on personal things like, like matters of life and death. Those are too tough to talk about, such as matters of faith and eternity. You can't meddle in people's lives. Why not? Is it really meddling to tell someone how to get where they really should be? You remember 13 years ago, a man by the name of Sully, Captain Sullenberger, a flight 1549 that left JFK and then encountered some geese, some birds that got into the jet engines and he had to put that plane down in the Hudson River. Now, can't you just imagine one of the flight attendants picking up the microphone after he's landed that jet on the Hudson, saying this, We enjoyed having you on our short flight today. Please remain seated until the captain has turned the fastened seatbelt sign off, and then you'll be free to float about the cabin. Well, if a flight attendant would have said that, we'd have thought, that's ludicrous. She's loony, okay? What do you think a flight attendant would have said when that plane landed on the Hudson? Don't you think she probably shouted everything that she knew to be true? I'll bet she said something like this in a good, firm, strong voice that everyone heard. Don't open those rear doors or we'll sink. The only doors we can open are the ones up in the middle because the water won't reach up that high because of the way the plane is sitting. You open those doors, you go out on the wing, and you stay there until the boats that are already on their way coming to take you to safety get here. Don't you think she said something like that? By the way, not a one of the 155 people on board were lost. Everyone survived. Did that sound bossy, what she would have said? Oh, yeah. Did it sound intolerant? Sure. Did it sound narrow-minded? Yeah. Was she telling them the one thing they needed to do in order to save themselves? Or did she say, well, I'm sorry, but I don't want to meddle in your personal affairs. Just, you're on your own. No, she told them, <laughs> she told them where to go. Pardon that expression, but she, she told them where to go and how to get there. And they did. Planes were not made for rivers, but for runways. And the Bible tells us that you were made 
for the next world, not for this world. It's a world where you can spend eternity with the one that created you in his own image. And there's a reason why Peter says in, in, second Peter chap, in the second chapter of, of uh, his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, we're strangers, we're aliens, we are not of this world, this is not where we belong. And so being sold out to a cause, being committed to the cause of Christ, is not being narrow-minded or intolerant, it is being committed to showing people the one way to get to heaven. And it means that you live like you believe. And so are you committed to the cause of Christ? And are you willing to do what God commands you to do? Here's a second step in this process of commitment. And that's you got to step out in faith. Step out in faith. Simon Peter stepped out of the boat one time early on. He actually walked on water for a while. Now this time he actually dives out of the boat. But Christ wants him to step out in some other ways such as in love and in service. And, and in the next section there's this very personal encounter between Jesus and Simon Peter. In fact it seems to be their very first heart to heart conversation since the last supper. Now you remember that night. The night that Jesus predicted the disciples would turn and fall away from him. And Peter quickly opens his mouth and inserts both feet, all right? He had, a, he, he had a habit of doing that. He quickly speaks up and says, Lord, even if all these other guys let you down, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never, never desert you. I'm with you, Lord. And Jesus turns to him and says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And in a matter of hours, he denied Christ to save his own hide. And now here he is face to face in a personal encounter with the one that he had betrayed. Look at verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these what? Do you love me more than the other apostles do? Possibly. Do you love me more than these fishing boats? Maybe. Do you love me more than that net full of 153 large fish? I don't know what Jesus was referring to, actually. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. This is one of the passages in the English language that loses a little bit in the translation. You've probably heard preachers preach on this, but the first time that Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The Greek word for love is agape. That unconditional, sacrificial type of love. But Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love, and he uses a different Greek word, phileo, referring to a brother type of love. Philadelphia is known as the city of 
brotherly love, yeah. Combination of two Greek words, philos, love, and adelphos, brother. Yeah. So he uses a different word. Peter does. Peter, well, Jesus asked the second time, do you agape love me? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter answers the second time, you know that I have a brotherly love for you, which wasn't what Jesus asked, but it's how Peter responds. But the third time when Peter gets grieved, the third time Jesus asks him, do you have a phileo, brotherly love for me? Now that grieved Peter. And he says, you know, I have a brother love for you. A few things I notice here. First of all, Jesus asked him how many times? Three times. Wonder why. We all think of what? Peter denied him three times. And maybe that's why Jesus asked three times. Why this, this play on words here? Which actually is not so much a play on words, it's just that our English translation, you miss what's actually being spoken here. And some, some people say, well, I think it's because, you know, Jesus is saying, Peter, I love you. And Simon Peter is just saying, yeah, Lord, I like you. A comparison of loving and liking. I, I don't think so. I don't think that that's what the takeaway is. But instead, what I see myself is a man whose personality type is to speak before he thinks. Can you relate to that? <laughs> Thank you for that testimony there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and how many times did Peter open his mouth and insert his foot? You know, more than once, obviously. But, and I can relate to that, but Simon Peter, I think, remembers all too well the last personal encounter and conversation that he had with Jesus when he had overpromised and then he didn't deliver the goods. He promised commitment, but instead he compromised. And Peter knows that on that night he wounded Christ, and because of it, he himself is wounded. And so Simon Peter, maybe he's learned his lesson, and he's not going to promise agape love until he's sure that he can deliver agape love. And so he tries to be a little safer, maybe, and says, I know I can love you with a brotherly love. And Probably in his heart, he knows he could love him with an agape love, but he just wasn't willing to try to say it in light of what he had done in the past. I, I wonder if that's the takeaway here. Now, the message of Christ, I think, is quite clear. He states it three times. Same number of times Simon Peter denied him. Because if you're committed to the cause, and Jesus says, if you truly love me, you'll take care of my flock. And he's not talking about literal sheep, of course. According to John chapter 10, we know sheep represent Christ's followers. And according to Luke chapter 15, we see that lost sheep are outside the security of the fold, prodigals that need to return to a loving shepherd. And so we have a responsibility to reach out and show our love by going after the lost sheep. We've got to step out in faith to do that. And I'm not sure who it was who first said, if you believe in a heaven and hell... How much do you have to hate someone to not share your faith with them? 
Did you hear that? If you really believe in a heaven and a hell, how much do you have to hate someone not to share your faith with them? You see, the Lord went to some incredible lengths to make heaven a possibility for you. And Jesus hangs on a cross in front of the entrance to hell and basically says the only way you're going in there is over my dead body. At certain junctures in your life, you're brought face to face with Jesus Christ, just like Peter is here. And you have to decide if you're going to live for him and be committed to the cause and step out in faith, or if you're going to live for yourself. And understand this, God does not send people to hell. They take themselves there over the dead body, over the risen body of Jesus. They send themselves by rejecting a sacrifice, thumbing their nose at his perfect life, thinking they can do it on their own. And that's why we need to take a genuine interest in feeding sheep, serving and loving others and sharing our faith. You're never going to reap a harvest if you don't plant a seed. And our desire here at New Hope should be to branch out from this building and try to spiritually feed sheep and to love people and come closer to them. Our desire should be to share the gospel with those who have never yet accepted it. And some people, they'll say, thank you for the invitation, but... And then they'll give you an excuse as to why they're not going to come and visit or they have no interest in the Lord. But there will always be someone that will say, you know, I'd like that. I'll come. I'll be there. But it takes from us a commitment to the cause of Christ. And that involves stepping out in faith. When it comes to the church and when it comes to spiritual matters, it's always about commitment, not convenience. So we have to have obedience to the Lord's command. We've got to be willing to step out in faith. And the third step in this process is to stay the course when the going gets tough. Stay the course when the going gets tough. Talking about perseverance. Talking about endurance. The ability to keep on keeping on. You know, when we face hardships, the going gets tough, you got to stay the course. And most of the time in the past when I've preached on this passage, with this interaction between Jesus and Peter, I've usually ended it with Jesus saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But you know, the next verses give us a sobering twist to the end of the story because Jesus says one more thing to Simon Peter. In verse 18 and 19, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You see that phrase, you will stretch out your hands? What does that indicate? Peter would stretch out his hands. It indicates what? The cross. Absolutely. It's an indication that Peter would be crucified someday and die a martyr's death. And Peter made a tremendous difference in the world. He made great sacrifice. 
He was in prison, he was beaten, he was rejected, he was ridiculed, he was eventually killed. And according to early church historians such as Jerome and Eusebius, along with a host of others, they all confirm the story that Simon Peter was crucified in Rome during the reign of Nero. And the accounts all say the same, that Peter requested he be crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to be crucified exactly like his Lord had been. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be thou faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I think sometimes we forget that verse and falsely assume that if we follow Jesus, everything's supposed to go smoothly for us, that Jesus owes us some kind of smooth sailing of the health and wealth, you know, and that you're going to have your best life now, but that's not always the case. Commitment to the cause of Christ means that you may struggle financially even though you give a tithe to the Lord. Commitment to the cause of Christ might mean losing your job while maintaining your integrity. Commitment to the cause of Christ may mean that even though you're a 21-year-old studying to be a missionary on a foreign field, God may still allow you to battle cancer. Why do those things happen? I don't know if I can fully explain it, but I know one thing that can happen, and that is when the world sees your commitment to the cause, God can receive glory. Jesus doesn't promise us an easy road. He does promise to be with us on the road. He promises there will be greater joy in sacrifice and in self-preservation. And maybe that's why Jesus concludes this section with the same words he spoke when he called Simon Peter into his ministry. Remember what he said? He says the same thing at the end of that passage as he said, or this passage as he said three years before. He looks at Simon Peter and he says, follow me. Follow me. And considering what Peter and others in the first century suffered for the cause, anything that we might suffer in 2022 or in the rest of our life will probably seem rather tame. But there were people who stayed the course when the going got tough. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, the writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, 
they should not be made perfect. There were a lot of people, a lot of people who stayed the course when the going got tough and lost their lives because of it. And I know from experience that any time that a church gets on a roll, when a church begins to grow, when the Lord is blessing the church, at some point Satan's going to throw some obstacles in the path. And it can take a lot of different forms. It can be in the form of personality conflicts where some people get upset at each other. Praise God that never happens in the church, right? No, you know it does. It could come in the form of a leadership decision where you don't understand why they decided to do this instead of to do that. But probably the biggest obstacle would be Satan's favorite weapon, and that's fear. Fear that it's just going to cost too much. Fear that people won't commit themselves to the, to the future of the Lord's church here at New Hope. Fear that we're just spending too much money. Just fear that, that, it, that it won't work out and people won't stick with it. And, and the tendency will be to try to make decisions where we eliminate all the risk. And you can't operate that way as a church. You can't live in fear. We have to stay the course when the going gets tough. And, and the scriptures teach in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're to walk by faith, not by sight. Remember Noah? As far as we know, it had never even rained on the earth when God told him to build an ark. And certainly he'd never seen a flood. We want to love God, love people. And serve the world, but the question is, are we committed to the cause? Do we have what it takes? Do we have the courage to step up and step out and stay the course? Commitment to the cause means that we're going to obey what God commands. We're going to step out in faith, and we're going to stay the course. And Peter did. Did he make some mistakes along the way? Yes, he did, but he stayed the course question is, will we? That's the message. We're going to sing a hymn of decision. Anytime that we consider the cause of Christ, we've got decisions to make. So if you have a decision you'd like to make publicly this morning, you can meet me down front as we stand, as we sing.